0: Welcome to Inside Dartmouth Medicine, a web extra interview
1: produced by Dartmouth Medicine Magazine, explaining the art and science of medicine at Dartmouth Medical School and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And now to our host, Dana
0: Grossman. Hello, I'm Dana Grossman, the editor of Dartmouth Medicine Magazine, talking with Dr. Parker Toll, a physician and a poet. His work has appeared in many anthologies and journals, and been nominated for the prestigious Pushcart Prize. A book of his poems is due out later this year. Dr. Toll has been on the Dartmouth Medical School faculty for more than 25 years, practicing neurology in Littleton, New Hampshire. He says he practices medicine like a poet, while a critic once said his poems have a sensibility that joins medical exactness with metaphorical openness. Welcome to Inside Dartmouth Medicine, Parker. Tell me, how did you get started writing poetry?
1: Dana, I was a reader, number two in my high school class, after Mary Miles, who became a writer, now deceased. Bill Matthews, some years ago at the Frost Place in Franconia, said that poets have three imperatives, to read, to read, and to read. I wrote one terrible imitation of T.S. Eliot in college, But really it was only after four years of training after medical school and three years in the United States Navy as I started my practice in Boston in 1966 that I also started to write.
0: Has writing poetry been a constant for you ever since then?
1: It's never waned. I've not had writer's block. I think medical practice just keeps us too busy for uh, the luxury of of stopping. And I think of Dickens, who stayed extremely busy from anything I've read, making a living while writing quite prolifically. Of course, much of our time is not spent writing the actual lines and words. This past year, I've spent a majority of my writing time collating and honing poems for my first book, which will be coming out, as you mentioned. The other thing is I have concentrated myself on writing poetry and not other forms of literature. This has been my passion. On my uh, graduation reading from my MFA program at Vermont College in 1989, a young uh, woman and classmate came up to me and blurted, do you write short stories? I was crushed. My uh, concentration has been very much in poetry rather than other forms I think what we choose, we have very little control over, and this is what my choice has been. Our mistress is our muse.
0: You've helped nurture the careers of other poets in several ways. Has that had an impact on your own writing?
1: I taught for 15 years or so every summer at the Robert Frost Festival of Poetry in Franconia. This is a very compassionate and professional environment for a week each summer, which uh, deepened my knowledge and appreciation of the art and craft among uh, many instances the session of Jane Kenyon some years ago comes to mind when she demonstrated her process in translating Akhmatova for the past seven years I've been an associate editor at the Worcester Review I was fortunate enough to come in contact with many fine literary figures known and unknown editing special issues on Frank O'Hara and with Dartmouth English professor Cleopatra Mathis on Stanley Kunitz in the celebration of his 100 years of life. Both of these poets uh, grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. I must give you the quotation we discovered by W.H. Auden about Stanley. When Auden was asked back in the 60s why Kunitz had not been given the recognition he deserved, he said, quote, Give him time, a hundred years or so. He's a patient man," Antiquity is on my mind these days. My mother just celebrated her 100 years with wits intact just this past Sunday, as Stanley did in 2005.
0: One of your poems was recently included in National Public Radio's Writer's Almanac. How did it feel to hear your work read by Garrison Keillor?
1: Reading the notice on my email, was like reading my acceptance letter to medical school. He reads well. He did botch the pronunciation of my name. I was pleased with his reading, but I don't think we are ever completely satisfied with our own work, whoever reads it. The striving never ends. He picked up cases from an anthology called Body Language, Poems of the Medical Training Experience, which just came out in November from BOA Editions. I strongly recommend the book, edited by two residents and a staff physician at the medical school in Rochester, New York.
0: How do you work on your poetry? Is it a little bit every day or in concentrated sessions? And how do you know when a given poem is finished?
1: It's not unusual for me to publish a poem I have worked on, off and on, for 20 years or more. Poems of mine that you see in print or that I read in public are almost universally several years old. This varies from poet to poet. Dylan Thomas' poems came off his pen finished, but he might do just a very few lines in one day. I work most evenings like cunits, often late. I spend more time on weekends and vacations. In terms of a poem being finished, Enjoy the quote that Ellen Bryant Voigt made when someone asked her when she knew that a poem was finished. She replied, honey, when you stop revising, you're dead.
0: Do you think physicians bring anything special to the crafting of poetry?
1: We entertain the encounter between art and science. In neurology, we must face up to the issues of mind and brain. Ethical dilemmas are hovering over us as they are over cultural figures. Society may be looking to us for leadership, others must say, how well we respond. Life and death embody our arena as they do that of the artist. The craft, we write no more good poems nor any less bad ones than any other group, just as we are, no better no worse than them in any moral endeavor.
0: Do you feel that writing poetry has affected the way you practice medicine and what percentage of your poems are on medical subjects and what other subjects do you often write about?
1: Writing poems and studying their language has helped me to express myself to patients and understand their expressions to me. Is not language a defining characteristic of human beings? Because of confidentiality issues, I write very few medical poems less than 5% of my output. Sometimes I have gotten permission from patients to publish, even written permission. The chief icons of my existence are mountains. The whole final section of my poetry manuscript, which will be published this year, addresses the mountain landscape. When the interviewing panel at uh, the University of Vermont College of Medicine asked why I wanted to go to the school, I answered in two words, the mountains. And I believe that was why I was accepted. Other prominent topics in my manuscript are family and friends, grief and loss.
0: Who are your favorite poets, both historical and contemporary?
1: I was strictly average as an English major in college, so I didn't secure popular fashionable seminars like the novel or the 20th century poets. I got old timers, and I'm very grateful for that. Horace is a great stimulator to write. So was the mid-20th century New York poet Frank O'Hara. I love the metaphysicals, Marvel, Don, the Romantics, Wordsworth, and Theodore Ruthke encompassed all I've mentioned above, as did his dear older friend Kunitz, who still long outlived him. Yeats' Second Coming is, for me, another of the great poems of our language, starting, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world and ends. And what great beast, it's time come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. The poetry of Don Hall and his dear deceased wife Jane Kenyon have been great inspiration and consolation for my wife and I. Cleopatra Mathis and Sid Lee, right here in the Upper Valley, have been friends in the art. And keep your eye out for my friend, Stefan Balin, hematologist oncologist at the White River Junction Veterans Administration Hospital. He knows well whereof we speak. Lastly, may I praise the Dartmouth medical students in their efforts at engaging the dialogue between arts and medicine in, with their journal lifelines founded by Sai lee in 2002 and being sustained currently by claire landgren the floodgates are opened
0: i'm delighted to hear you mention yates as one of your favorites because he's one of mine too uh, lake isle of innisfree is one of the ones that i love um you're a neurologist do you think there's anything particular about the skills your specialty calls for Or the kind of patients you see that are pertinent to writing poetry?
1: Of course, as neurologists, we deal with disorders of language. I've had occasion to look into some of the basic science investigating creativity. This is a mine and a morass, but absolutely fascinating. I'd like to refer you to an op-ed column by David Brooks in the New York Times last March in which he lists nine areas of endeavor in which undergraduate students are well advised by a pool of Brooks friends and colleagues to engage in between matriculation and graduation. One was neuroscience.
0: What has been the reaction of patients and colleagues when they've learned that you write poetry?
1: Stunned vapor. Honestly, that's unfair. Alex Reeves, former chairman of neurology, was very supportive. But my Coop lecture at the medical center in 1998 was not well attended. I asked the few patients who bring up poetry if they write, and if so, I asked them if they would copy some of their poems for me. We dialogue in a meaningful way. The Poetry Club is devoted, but it is small. Poetry is not a methodology or a therapy. It's an inner need. As A.R. Ammon says in a taped interview for the Modern Poetry Association, if they can't help but write, this is Rilke's advice, and it's the best I've ever heard. If you can't help it, then do it with all your heart. But if you can help it, there are so many other things to do that seem to me fun, like surfing or wind sailing, whatever, playing the piano, amusing yourself, traveling, trying deliberately not to be obsessive. Why not have a few friends, be with people? Why be holed up in a little room, ticking away by yourself, obsessively picking at your own liver forever? But if you have no choice, if you must do that, then... There are certain very high pleasures that can come once in a while along with all the agony. I think they are perhaps worth it. I would say to them, okay, if you wish to do it, do it.
0: Well, I would say in conclusion that I think the listeners of Inside Dartmouth Medicine are very glad that you're among those who do do it. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Dana. This has been a copyrighted production of Dartmouth Medicine Magazine. The views expressed here are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of Dartmouth Medical School or Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. To comment on this interview or to learn more about Dartmouth Medicine, visit us online at dartmed.dartmouth.edu.